0: Hello and welcome to Peaceful at Heart. My name is Cedric Martin and I'll be your host. Each episode we're going to take a closer look at the book, Peaceful at Heart, Anabaptist Reflections on Healthy Masculinity. We'll dive into the chapters, hear from the authors. And think a little bit more about what healthy masculinity might look like in our modern context. Joining us today is David Evans. Uh, David, thanks for your work in the books that we can discuss today. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing well, thanks for having me. Um, Yeah, it's a good sunny day here in Virginia, so I'm enjoying myself.
0: That's great. Yeah, we're very glad that you can be here. I I really appreciated your your chapter and your your perspective on, on healthy masculinity. Uh, before diving in too far. uh, Could you tell us a little bit about when you were approached about this project and and what experience you bring?
1: Yeah, so I believe it was uh, early, maybe spring semester, I'm a professor. So uh, I kind of think in terms of academic (laughs) calendars. So I think it was the spring semester of 2018 when I received the inquiry about, um, you know, whether I'd be interested in this project or not. So it was sometime around there. And to be honest, I mean, you know, what I bring to this 44 years of being raised as a man <laughs> in, uh, in the United States of America, um, and as a professor, a researcher who has spent time, particularly in, in 19th, the late 19th and early 20th century America, looking at the construction of uh, gender particularly uh, paying attention to issues of masculinity and black masculinity in particular, uh, simply recognizing the intersectionality of race and gender and finding myself, uh, you know, in that story, even as late as uh, the 1980s and 90s. Um, so I think, you know, personal experience as well as historical context for how we think about um masculinity uh, in in America.
0: Wow, that sounds great. I'd uh, love to take a lecture from you sometime. (laughs) Uh, David, in in your chapter, you say uh, those most harmed by manpower tend to have spent the most intellectual energy and effort researching it. What do men need to do with this awareness and, and knowledge of the patriarchy?
1: I mean, I'm going to be crude here. I think men need to listen and shut up. I mean, I think like there's so much that as folks who are privileged in terms of gender. And I'm, I'm thinking here mostly of cishet men, uh, cisheterosexual men who, for whom the world, or at least the United States, my context, um, it's really been set up to make life easy for us. And to the extent that there are hardships here and there, the power of our voices and our presence often means that if we're having a problem with something, we can get some help. Now, as a Black man, uh, I have other hindrances. So as a man, I certainly can call on people, people pay attention to me in certain ways. As a light-skinned Black man, I have certain kind of um, uh, privileges to enter into spaces that some other Black men do not. But there are also times where being black means that I'm not taken as seriously or heard in the same way that perhaps a white man would be. That said, generally speaking, men, when it comes to gender, are privileged and powerful people and privileged and powerful people simply don't take time to figure out why they're privileged and why they're powerful. We just reap the benefits of it and love being in those positions. And so we just kind of move through life with a general sense of ease in these kinds of identity categories. The people who struggle, who um, find themselves running up against barriers, walls, having doors closed on them because they are not being listened to. Their presence is not noticed except for maybe as a fetishized uh, body or as a spectacle um, for the entertainment of those who are powerful and privileged. Those people must, by necessity, figure out how it is that they can live into this world, benefit from it, and really survive in it. So this is a survival thing for for many people who are on the underside of patriarchy and misogyny, which for me is what masculinity is all about. And so those people are the people that men need to spend the most time listening to because they have had to, for their survival, learn what being a man is all about, what masculinity means, what it means to be under the, the paternal view of of men to be covered by men. So like in Christian circles, we talk about coverture and all of this and headship and all of that. If you are a person who doesn't directly benefit from those things, which in some ways people still do, women can still benefit from some of those things, but maybe indirectly, you need to know exactly what this thing is doing to you so that you don't get crushed by it. And so I think in a lot of ways, men generally don't know. I mean, even what I just said, for many men, this will be news to them. They have no idea what I'm talking about. And to the extent that they do, they might even find it offensive. And so um, what needs to happen is we need to sit back and stop talking. Because a lot of what masculinity is about is being loud, is taking up space, is using lots of words, speaking for other people and knowing, assuming that we know everything because from our position, we can see all and experience all and so on.
0: Well said. Thank you, David. David, in your chapter, you explained that you felt uh, conflicted between being black and being a man. You're told self-love is prob- problematic by a church leader, but you were told to love yourself by your mother. How far do you think we've come as a society? Do you worry that children today still have this struggle of knowing whether they can love themselves?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, I have I have children. So uh, this, is, this is really close, to, it's close to home. Um, you know, when I'm thinking about this pastor, that I heard or church leader, I'm really not a pastor or church leader at a Christian camp. I'm an eight-year-old kid. Um, I'm hearing these messages from a very young, impressionable age and kids hear things. It's it's hard to know how to interpret things. We don't, uh, you know, authority figures for many of us, we just assume that they have our best interest in mind. And I, and I actually think that this person probably did. What they were reading from the scriptures was, you know, the seven deadly, sins and that pride was one of them and the way they translated that to us or transmitted it to us was that pride is self-love now as a black child i grew up in a household where we were consistently told to love ourselves I mean, I, I think of Toni Morrison's text Beloved where uh, Baby Shugs is uh, one of the characters is out in the clearing with all of these other black folks and she is telling them to love themselves, to love their big noses, to love their their thick lips and to love their necks. Cause out yonder, they're not gonna love their necks. They're gonna lynch your necks, right? So these are the kind of stories that I was told my entire life. Love yourself, love your kinky hair, love your broad nose. We come from royalty, all of these things. You need to love yourself. And it was a protective measure because so much of the world around me taught me to see myself as ugly, as inferior, as not smart, not capable, except for maybe when it came to sports. But beyond that, I was not supposed to excel because I was black. So blackness was seen as something negative. And so parents needed to teach us to love ourselves. So, you know, to hear from a white church leader that this is one of the seven deadly sins, don't do this thing, don't love yourself. I was conflicted because I heard this as the voice of God. God is telling me not to love myself, that there's a problem with self-love. So yeah, I was very conflicted being a Christian and being a black person, really an evangelical, white evangelical kind of um, Christianity. As far as society getting better, man, I don't know. I, I, I say that honestly and sincerely, I don't know. I mean, I read texts like, uh, I think it's Claude Steele writes a, writes a book called Whistling Vivaldi, where he talks about um, identity stigmas. And the fact that if you grow up in a society where your part of your ident- identity is stigmatized, then you will hear stories and you will know those stories such that it will prohibit you from performing or being your best self. Now, this book is written, I think, in the early 2000s. And so, you know, I think 2007, 2008. So it's definitely a problem enough there that a social psychologist is talking about this kind of thing. Um, we also have pre- the prevalence of social media right now, which I think is kind of a scourge on all of our identities. So you turn on Facebook and you see how everybody else is doing, how everybody else is living, and their, you know, their faces are all filtered, and their their pictures are all happy and all of that kind of thing. And what does that do to a group of people who are? Stigmatized, who are traumatized, people who are living in poverty, who don't have the means to look like all of these other people. What does it do to our our body image, and all of that kind of thing? I think it it creates certain kinds of problems. I think that now, at the same time, we've got Black Lives Matter movements. I think Black Panther was huge, you know, for self identity purposes. But I think even the te- to testify to the reality or witness to the power of some of these forms, right? Why does it matter so much that a whole cast of Broadway characters are Black in a, in a in a show like Hamilton? Why is it such a big deal to have an all-Black movie? Or why does it matter how many people, how many Black folks win Oscars? Why does it matter, right? Why is all of that important? If... It's not the case that on some level, deeply, we know in our society that there's something wrong, that there are messages that we're telling to certain kinds of people that they're not good enough, that they can't make it, that they're not pretty enough, that they're not smart enough, and so on and so forth. So, in terms of how far we've come, I'm not sure. I'm not, I I think there are symbols in our society that tell us, you know, it's possible. But at the same time, we have massive structures and systems that make it very difficult for anybody to actually break out into these spaces and become, you know, now black, black kids are told, you can be president of the United States because Barack Obama was president of the United States. Okay, but what about all of these other realities that a black child is gonna have to deal with on their way to trying to become president of the United States? How many countless kids get caught up in, you know, the school to prison pipeline before they ever get a chance to know that they could be a great politician or that kind of thing. So it's it's very difficult. And, and to the point of this book, right, to think about masculinity in particular, what we're seeing right now is a rise of um, a kind of machismo, um, even a victimization of masculinity of manhood. The idea that men are actually the oppressed ones. I mean, imagine that in a society where to this point in the United States of America, and we'll just pick on presidents, we haven't had a woman as president. And most people can't even imagine that happening. Most denominations that I'm familiar with, mainline, denomin- I'm a United Methodist. And I know, I, I work at Eastern Midnight University. I know of conferences that struggle to to appoint women in the pulpit. So if, if we live in a society where the assumption is, you know, I'm still hearing things like the mailman or the policeman or the fireman, right? These are normative terms, that a man can be anything that a man wants to be, the assumption that a doctor is a man. And yet men now are saying we're oppressed by feminists. And so now, you know, one of the most popular books that are selling on Amazon is uh, 12 Rules for Life, which is all about elevating masculinity as order, as stability, right? And in contrast to femininity that is seen as chaos, as something that needs to be controlled. So this new masculinity movement is actually, I think, seeing not just a resurgence, but it's wildly popular amongst men. And not just white men, black men. There are are folks who are in the dating world who are telling men how they have to be and kind of what their bodies need to look like and how they need to speak and what kind of clothes they need to wear and how much money they need to have in order to attract a woman. And, And we have all across our culture. I mean, I think most of us are familiar with it. People saying things like, man up. Right, Be a man, all of those kinds of things. Those things haven't gone away. And until those things go away, I don't know that we can talk about coming so far. I think that there are men who maybe try to engage in, um, you know, being kind of experiencing a full range of emotion of being sensitive, right? but I I coach basketball and I see it with other coaches where a kid will cry or have a hard time. And they'll say, I'm tired of you being a whatever. You got to stop crying. You got to man up. Right. And so you hear it all across our culture, football, basketball, right. Um, The, the kind of male role models that we see in our society, like who are they? Right. Um, I, 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 you know, we hear, on occasion, it's okay to cry and all that kind of thing. But I think there's a resurgence of people saying, you know, I want men to be men. And it's about, and, and now, with folks recognizing that, you know, it's not just, um, you know, cis men and cis women, but there are trans men and trans women, there's also, um, you know, folks who are very threatened by the idea that maybe gender is on a spectrum and there's fluidity and that kind of thing. And and the the response to this tends to be from some corners um, of our society. No, we need to double down. Men need to be doing this. Women need to be doing that. Gender reveal parties. I'm sorry. I think I could just go on and on. I I think the more I think about it, the more I see that w- there's a reentrenchment of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman, the colors, the kind of voice that you're supposed to have. And even sometimes those folks who are interested in kind of challenging gender norms, or at least saying for themselves, like, I don't feel right in this body. Sometimes there's even a reinforcement of what a traditional man or woman is supposed to be even there. So, I don't know, you know, I'm not, as a historian, it's very difficult for me to prognosticate about what will happen. I kind of see what's happening right now as very similar to things that have happened in the past. Different, uh, maybe there's different kinds of language, but I also see kind of a backlash against folks who are trying uh, to expand the ways that we might think about what a man could be or what a man is.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We have to be very uh, aware of how we're navigating these conversations for sure. Thank you, David. Uh, I I suppose this is a a question that uh, you kind of talked about already into this, but uh, you say you spent much of your your teenage and young adult years trying to figure out what it meant to you to be a man. Um, Were you ever able to identify for yourself what it means to be a man?
1: You know, I mean, that's, It's a really difficult question for me to answer, not because I'm not comfortable in who I am. I've grown into that. Um, I think it's difficult for me because I feel bound in some ways by the way that our society generally defines what a man is. I'm much more comfortable talking about myself um, wanting to find out how to be a human. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm not a man. I know that I'm a man. Right. I know that um, I present as a man and that there whatever it means to biologically be a man. And that is really up for discussion. Right. There there are there are actual conversations that go on trying to define what it means to be a man or a woman biologically. And it's and it's really it's not a joke. Right. I mean, there are there there are women um, currently in track and field who are being tested on whether or not they are uh, biologically defined women. And the question for me is who gets to define that? Who gets to decide what is a legitimate and illegitimate man or woman? So for me, I want to kind of retreat from that conversation, not because I want to deny the power that I have as a man in society. That, I mean, for me, so I could say I know what a man is based on how my society defines that. A man is defined by his strength, by his stature, by, his, um, by how much he produces, right? By how strong he is, right? By, by how many children he fathers, right? How much money he makes, all of those kinds of things in the command of respect and authority and domination this person can have. That's a man, right? And a man's man is somebody who can kill things, Right, can go out and shoot a gun and can use the fist to, to tear someone else down or to force someone else to make decisions that they don't want to make. That's how my, deci- my society has defined what a man is. And I want to say, I don't want to become that. I don't want to live into that. Because I think what that is, is a kind of truncation of what humanity is. It, it limits, it constrains I feel suffocated by that definition, right? I'm a person. I'm a human being. I cry. I need to be held sometimes, right? I feel scared. Sometimes I don't know what's going to happen, right? Is everything going to be okay? I don't know. But in my society, I'm not allowed to say that. I'm supposed to be a a mountain or, or an oak, as they would say in like the cowboy movies, right? I'm supposed to be unmovable. I can't do that. I bleed, I hurt, right? As a, as a person who's grown up in the society and faced racism, has, has faced betrayal. I mean, just as a person who wants to have friends and sometimes those people don't like you back. Well, what do I do with that? Right. How do I how do I process that? If if these masculine uh, ways of being are my only options, well, what do I do? I retreat into spaces where I can feel control. So I I kill myself playing video games all day long. Right. Because I can control what happens in that video game or i punch a wall or i go to the gym and i try to try to make my muscles bigger so that i can have a bigger presence and assert myself in the world a little bit stronger or maybe i go get a gun because then you know i can i can do my target practice and i can carry my concealed weapon and i can feel powerful even though the reality is, is underneath all of that i actually don't feel all that powerful i'm scared But I'm not allowed to voice being scared. I'm not allowed to voice my fear as a man. But as a human, I think there's hope (laughs) because that's what humans do. We experience fear. We experience despair. We experience longing. We experience rejection. All of us at one point or another were little, little babies. All of us every single one of us, we cried, we needed nurture, we couldn't take care of ourselves, we were completely and utterly out of control. And we needed someone there to comfort, to guide, to hold. And I don't think we ever completely outgrow that. That is our humanity, right? At its most base level. And there are times in our lives, you lose your job. Your child is diagnosed with some type of disease, right? Your parent dies and you don't know what to do. No one knows what to do. <laughs> I've been studying this stuff as a historian. I, I study, um, you know, antiquity of the present, some, some 2000 years of history. Nobody knows. There's no right answer. I've been a pastor before. I've been a youth group leader. I've led men's groups I've been around thousands and thousands of people walking with them through all kinds of hurt. No one knows exactly what to do. What does it mean for men that we're not allowed to say that? Who's going to hold us? Who's going to comfort us? Who's going to sit with us in the silence of the unknown? And will we allow them to do it? I'm not even sure what question you asked. <laughs> um,
0: yeah, I was talking about uh, what it means to you to be a man, and I, I really appreciate thinking about what it means to be a human and, and the humanity of it all. Uh, thank you.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think I would just say too. See, because the the other thing is. So much of this manhood, womanhood, masculine, feminine thing is based upon a binary construction that seems to necessarily limit the possibilities of who we might be. There is a wide, vast spectrum of experiences of life, where you're born, who you're born to, what your culture is, what language you speak right? What music you listen to, God, I mean, what kind of art you take in and things you find beautiful or terrible. And then of course, there's the accident of DNA and biology and all of those things working together to make you who you are and your unique self, utterly unique self. There's never been anybody like you to ever live. And, And yet our society wants to say, you have this one little slice of identity that you must perform. Otherwise, we don't know what to do with you. Right? And we can try to negotiate within those lines, but you get beaten back if you step outside of those lines too much, right? And that's what I was trying to get at with with talking about the story of smear the queer, right? Because we learn these lessons, from. sometimes it's in play, And sometimes the cost is incredibly high. And so what I want to say, I mean, if there is going to be some type of salvation for manhood, we've got to bust wide open these constraints and recognize that men experience life in all of its diversity, and that has to be included in what it means to be a man. So on some level, I guess I would say if I was forced to, what it means to be a man is to be a human in the world who is a man. That's all it means. It doesn't mean anything more than that, except for we need to recognize on some level, especially as men. And this is what I try to teach my boys. You have been given in this society, certain kinds of power and privileges which will allow you to run over people. But if you care about your humanity and the humanity of others, of your sisters and brothers around you, then you will refuse to run them over and you will question this power and this privilege and you will learn to share, to give up, to stand in solidarity with. And that can only be possible if we do away with this fiction of these binary formulations. That's just not who we are. There's not a this or that. There's a whole lot of other stuff going on and we need to find ways to embrace all of that.
0: Absolutely. I think you you go on to say that in your chapter as well. And- you say in order to replace manpower with the power of love, uh, we need to engage the worlds of, of womanists and, and black feminist thought to engage women first.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we started out this conversation talking about the reality that the people who are most oppressed by these powers are the ones who are the most knowledgeable about them. And it's not just, be- and it's not just because of their survival. But when I see, I mean, this is this is why womanist or womanism as a as a as a theoretical way of being in the world exists, because black women in particular have been responsible for loving everybody in the United States of America. Before it was the United States of America. Right in colonial America, and all the way through antebellum, uh, antebellum America, where black women were literally nursing white people's babies and caring for heads of households. My my family um, itself has been, you know, very much led by women, a kind of matriarchal family. But I, you know, I, I've been learning too that this isn't some type of problem. Right. This isn't because uh, something didn't go right with men necessarily sometimes, but not always. Sometimes it was because the women were the best equipped to run the house and to make the money. Right. And to make sure everybody was taken care of. And what what we're learning, some of us who care to go back far enough, understand that in some ways it's always been this way. You know, in in some places in West Africa, there were women who ran their communities, who were the military of their communities, if you care about such things, right? Who made the ultimate decisions about which way the community of their group was going to go. Those of us who care about being Christian and care about churches, we know that the majority of our churches have always been women. Always. There have been women, women have outnumbered men all the time. And just because a man gets to be the one who is the pastor and says this and that, every pastor knows, every pastor knows, whether they'll say it or not. And I was a pastor for a time. If we didn't have those women in those churches, those churches would have been running to the ground. They wouldn't exist. So, so this is another myth of male power, that somehow there's a problem with men or with women uh, being leaders, matriarchs and so on and so forth. But here's the point, right? So black women have been loving everybody. That's my point, right? Black women, white women, Asian women, black men, white men, that's what black women have been doing and alice walker and others who have kind of kind of pushed harder for us to kind of put this into a philosophical way of being in the world or an ethic an ethical way of being in the world have said to us this is something that we can all participate in and that's that's part of the beauty i think of even blackness blackness is not exclusionary it never has been Any person who grows up in a black family knows we got all kinds of people from all kinds of places and all kinds of hues and all kinds of colors. And oftentimes it's big mommy or Nan or the great grandmother, right? Who who says, come on, baby, everybody's welcome. Everybody's welcome, right? So so our, our mothers, our great mothers our our grandmothers these are the people that we need to be paying attention to and our sisters right i mean this is this is a little side note but i was i was really uh, happy to learn a few years ago that of all the different people groups in the united states the group most likely to have a masters degree and to be well educated in the united states of america is a black woman they just know more than us. <laughs> like that's you know, and so so at some point, why aren't we listening to them? Well, I mean, we could give all kinds of reasons, but if we actually want to grow and we want to we want to become the full human that we can become in all of its uniqueness, I think that somebody like bell hooks is right. We need to spend time with women because women have been the ones who have been cultivating the art of loving all kinds of different people black women in particular whereas men have have almost shunned love right i mean you think about men's spaces what do men do in those spaces i mean what you know how many men walk around holding hands with each other or or putting their arm around each other for just not at a basketball game or a baseball game not in a sport but because they're saying to each other, hey, listen, you're important to me and you matter to me. Right. When things are hard, how, how many times do we do we put our hand on our, brother, our brother's knee and say, hey, man, I'm here for you. But there's so much uh, confusion be, between our sexuality and our emotions and fear. Right. I mean, we've got to name it the homophobia of cis hetero men, that if we get too close to another man emotionally, if we, I mean, dare I say we have intimacy with each other, that now suddenly I'm gonna, I feel uncomfortable because I've been told if I do that, now I'm I'm queer. And we've been taught our whole lives that if you're queer, somebody might try to beat that out of you, right? Maybe we all need to be a little bit more queer. Maybe we need to be a little bit more like the women in our lives. Maybe a lot more. Because I think what what happens when we don't is we have stories from our children. And some of us have heard these stories, whether it's because we're in pastoral counseling, you know, we hear these tales. Or because we're we're, we're therapists, psychoanalysts, and what will happen is grown children coming to us and saying, our fathers never loved us. My father never told me he loved me. He never hugged me. You know, the only time I could really get his attention was when I was performing or perhaps we were out in the yard doing something. So I took what I could get. But man, I would have loved to have had his arms around. Him. I would loved to look into his eyes and know that he deeply cared about me. Or perhaps, you know, as a, as a son, uh, you know, I, I grew up and I never saw my father cry. Well, I've been crying. I'm not really sure how to do that. Now, for me, I didn't grow up with a father in my house. And I'm grateful because I learned some things about my father. And, you know, there's a (laughs) I learned as a Christian that um, I needed to have my father around in order to be a good man. Well, I learned that my father wasn't always a great dude. Right. And so what lessons would he have taught me had he been in the house with me? What would I have learned? What kind of person would I become? Instead, I grew up in a house where my mother said, listen, the only thing you need to know is to love everybody, period. No questions about it. She worked with developmentally disabled adults. And I used to say things to her, like i say, why? why are they so weird? And she would say, how do you know you're not the weird one? Right? What makes you the arbiter of what's normal? And so I've grown up with those lessons my entire life. I don't know what normal is, and I certainly don't have the authority to tell somebody else whether they're normal or weird. And in all of my study, I've got four degrees, <laughs> in all my study and trying to find the truth of this and that, I've come back to one central truth. Love everybody. That's it. That's it. It sounds simple, but it's so Incredibly difficult to really love someone. It's not something we can control. People are. You know, they're 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 wild in certain ways, right? They're unpredictable. We don't know what they're gonna do or what they're gonna feel. I mean, we can hardly keep track of ourselves. And so to really love someone and all of the different ways that they're going to show up in the world, it takes effort. It takes strength. It takes consistency. It takes vulnerability. It takes a certain amount of self-knowledge, introspection, and willingness to feel and to recognize too that we fail. And I think what's happened for many of us men is we've never been trained in that world. I mean, we run from failure. We've been taught to run from failure. I think relationships oftentimes are just are a series of failure. Good ones have a lot of fun in them too, but there's a lot of failure that goes on. And apologizing, step on each other's toes and forgiving and taking responsibility for actions and things like that. I think one of the reasons we need to listen to black women is because they've been practicing this for so long. And we haven't. We're basically still little babies. We're still children. And maybe that's why we need to be held so much. Maybe that's why we long for it so much. And maybe that's why we strike back so hard when somebody touches that little boy who never got a chance to say, I'm scared, I need a hug. And we're now as adult men trying to protect that little boy the only way we know how. We're gonna put up our fists and we're gonna fight. And that's not what he needs.
0: David, I've, I've really appreciated this and I genuinely wish we had more time to, to keep discussing this. Uh, thank you so much for, for spending some time talking through uh, masculinity, humanity. Uh, but before we go, uh, do you have any, any sending thoughts for us?
1: I mean, the only thing that I would say at this point, and this is to to contradict something I said a little bit earlier that I don't know how far we've come. I, I still stand by that mostly, but I think there is something unique about this moment in history. And that is that we have access to more information, more people, more writing, more knowledge than at any other time in the history of humanity. This little phone that we can carry around or the computer that we have where we can do searches and we can find things. I mean, it's amazing to me that I have colleagues and friends who can build houses, who can build cars, who can do all kinds of things just by watching videos on YouTube or some other platform. And, they, and this do-it-yourself project, it's, it's incredible. I mean, I've found myself been able to do some things that years ago would have been near impossible to do on my own just because of the power of how much information is available to me. I say that because if we really want to grow and learn and become the kind of humans that I, I think our loved ones are asking of us, I think that deep down we long to be, we can do a lot to educate ourselves now. We don't have to wait, right? We can, we can start now. You can, you can start to kind of spend some time reading uh, women in particular, right? I know there's some men out there that want to talk about masculinity, and I'm telling y'all, watch it right? Be careful, be skeptical about men who are talking about masculinity right now. First, immerse yourself in the stories of women. Feminists, yes, feminists, womanists, black feminists, immerse yourself in their stories. Hear their anger. Hear their fear of men, right? Because if you don't understand the rage that women have over what has happened in the world because of us, right? Then you don't really have any hope of changing. It's not about defending yourself or defending men. There are, and and here's the thing, I'm going to say this because my son said something to me the other day. He said, you know, I've been running across some some women on, on social media who've said that, you know, men are toxic, men are evil, kill men, all of this kind of stuff. And here's how I responded. I asked him, I said, son, how many women do you know Who are violent towards men? How many have you heard who are violent towards men? How many women are trying to restrict men from spaces in the workplace or in life? Name me one. My point is simply this. These are expressions of anger and rage. They're not, women aren't actually trying to exclude us. They don't do that. (laughs) So what we need to do is hear beneath what these words are about. Where is this coming from? If there's someone in your life who is very loving and peaceful towards you, and one day they say to you, I hate you. That doesn't mean you now have become a victim. It means you probably need to ask some questions about how they got to that place. So start with women. Right, People like Bell Hooks, Audre Lorde and, and others, read them. Read, read novels from Toni Morrison and Alice Walker, Octavia Butler. Right, Immerse yourself in their thought. And then after you've done that and you kind of really understand where all this is coming from, feel free to go read somebody like Jordan Peterson and all those other folks. I think that stuff is really dangerous, but I think we need to understand that too. I just think that we need to be formed well first, because those folks are trying to tap into certain insecurities to make us uphold patriarchy, where where we have the freedom to oppress other people. And I'm telling y'all, that is not where healing is. That's not where wholeness is. Healing and wholeness for us men is looking deeply at ourselves and being willing to give up and share power so that we can become the lovers that I think that many of us believe God has called us to be.
0: Thank you, David. Thank you so much for your time and uh, for your wisdom. We really appreciate you spending this time talking about it. I uh, hope you have a great rest of your day.
1: Hey, you too. Thanks a lot. Take care.
0: Peaceful at Heart was recorded in the city of Tkaronto, the land covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. This is the Dish with One Spoon territory. The Dish with One Spoon is a treaty between the Anishinaabe, Mississaugas, and Haudenosaunee that bound them to share the territory and protect the land. Subsequent indigenous nations and peoples, Europeans, and all newcomers have been invited into this treaty in the spirit of peace friendship, and respect. We all eat out of the dish, and all of us that share this territory with one spoon. We want to acknowledge the ancestral lands and waterways of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Seneca, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. Toronto is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. We wish to thank them, and any other nations who cared for this land. Colonization is a continuing form of oppression, so it is important that we acknowledge the lands and digital spaces that we are holding and taking up. We remember the acknowledged and unacknowledged, recorded and unrecorded, past, present, and future. We are all treaty people. Peaceful at Hurt was produced and edited by myself, Cedric Martin. It was made possible thanks to Mennonite Central Committee, Mennonite Church Eastern Canada, Be in Christ Church of Canada, Theatre of the Beat, and of course, by Mennonite Men. To find more resources, head to Mennonitemen.org.